From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome everyone to Mayo Clinic Radio. Autism spectrum disorder is a condition related to brain development that impacts how a person perceives and socializes with others, causing problems in social interaction and communication. The term spectrum in autism spectrum disorder refers to the wide range of symptoms and their severity. On today's program, we'll discuss autism spectrum disorder with two Mayo Clinic experts. Also on the program, we'll learn how telemedicine is being used in the emergency department to bring care to rural hospitals. And pharmacists do more than just fill prescriptions, understanding the various roles the pharmacist can play in your health care. All that right after this. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Autism, or Autism Spectrum Disorder, also called ASD, is actually, is it becoming more common? I think one thing is for sure, we're hearing more about it than ever before. But what is it, and how common is it? Do we know what causes it? What are the symptoms? Is it treatable? There's all, all kinds of questions. questions, yes. Joining us in studio to talk about autism spectrum disorder is Mayo Clinic neuropsychologist, Dr. Andrea Hebner. Welcome back to the program. Thank you. Good to be here. Thanks, Dr. Hebner. So is there a difference between a psychologist and a neuropsychologist? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So you're, you're <laughs> Neuropsychologists special. are way better than yeah. psychologists. They're much yes. smarter. Yes. So uh, you've had additional training. I have. Compared to the average psychologist. Yes. Yes. And in brain. In brain behavior relationships. So there's a a two year fellowship that focuses on brain development and how that maps onto behavior. Two extra years. Yes. Uh, Impressive. (laughs) What is the official definition of what autism is? So autism involves difficulties in social interaction, communication, um, and then also this kind of third category of difficulties that has to do with behaviors. So individuals that have trouble interacting with other people, knowing the rules for social conversation and social situations, but then they also have language difficulties that interfere with their ability to perform in those situations. And then also the behavioral things that go along with it, like rigidity, um, resistance to changes, obsessive interests, sensory sensitivities, and the like. And that's what the spectrum piece is. Yes. All along the spectrum. So, but we never really heard it referred to as spectrum until the last few years. What does that mean? When we discuss autism spectrum disorder, essentially it means the same thing as autism. Everything is all under one umbrella. So in previous iterations of our diagnostic and statistical manual, we had four different conditions that were separated out. Um, As of 2013, all of those categories have been collapsed underneath of the autism spectrum umbrella. And that's just a recognition that there are all different versions of autism, um, ranging from individuals that are nonverbal and who communicate and interact very minimally to people that are actually very bright and gifted in some cases, but still have difficulty in social arenas. What is Asperger's syndrome? Um, Asperger's syndrome refers to individuals that are um, on the spectrum, but very high functioning in terms of their IQ and their verbal skills. So often they can talk a lot about things of interest, but that social connection piece is still missing. 
in addition to that, they have difficulties in this behavioral aspect of autism, which would be like the obsessive interest or the overfocus on things, the rigidity to the point that it causes problems for them in daily life. So Asperger's syndrome is just a stop on the spectrum. Exactly. Is this uh, truly more common than it used to be, uh, or are we just hear more about it? It's just more uh, often diagnosed. We don't think that that has changed a whole lot over the years, and there's lots of studies that have supported that. Uh, the differences, though, are in um, medical providers recognizing what is autism, so that full range or spectrum that we talked about. We used to think that people that were on the higher end of that spectrum didn't have autism, and so there was a whole group of people that weren't considered autistic because they were getting along okay, or they were having some difficulties, but they still had good intellectual ability, and so they weren't identified. Sure, they're quirky, right? or quirky. they're just standoffish, or they're you know geniuses. Loners. You know, whatever. Right. It's interesting to me that that is part of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. It can be if it causes impairment. So that's a really important point because being quirky is a lovely part of the human mm -hmm. condition that we don't want to pathologize. But if the quirkiness um, arises to a level that it's causing problems for the person in their everyday life and they're not able to do things as they need to on a daily basis, like function in school or function on the job, then that's where we start to get concerned that this might have crossed the line from quirkiness into something that's actually a disorder. What I think is interesting is if you have this whole great big spectrum from high functioning to very low functioning, how in the world do you diagnose it then? This is, um, it's not an easy task. When children have, when children come to us and they have pretty obvious symptoms, often we can diagnose autism even in the first year of life, but definitely in years two to three. So the symptoms of autism again, really wow. vary based on the particular version of, of autism that we're looking at. But in general, um, the difficulties that they have are common across all of those individuals. And some of the more common ones are uh, difficulty with nonverbal aspects of communication, so difficulty with eye contact, lack of facial expression, sort of a flat expression, lack of reaction to things going on around them. Um, often these individuals don't understand personal boundaries, so they'll get, you know, too close to people, and often they don't seek out social interaction as often. So they're perfectly happy in many cases to just kind of experience things on their own and not to share things that they're excited about or interested in with other people around them. I think parents, when their child is diagnosed, they just think, okay, my child has autism, is on the spectrum, but how can we help them be more high-functioning so that's the whole point and the whole reason that it's important to get identified as early as possible and to get intensive treatment and therapies as early as possible. What's the earliest you've ever diagnosed a child with autism? And are they usually referred to you and it's because the pediatrician sees them and suspects or the family physician suspects they might be autistic? They come to us for both of those reasons, but I have to say that when we are able to diagnose children very early, under the age of two, it's usually because parents are astute and they know that something is different about this child, the connection is different, um, the child maybe doesn't interact with them in the same way or smile at them in the same way, eye contact can be amiss. And so usually when we're able to identify children very early, it's because parents have spoken up to their 
pediatrician or other provider and said, hey, I'm concerned. And then that provider listens and sends them on for further evaluation. Is it true that autism spectrum disorder affects one in 59 children? It's true. That that common. Mm-hmm. And you, but you think it's always been that common. We just didn't identify it. That's didn't what the research is it. showing us. Mm-hmm. Speaking yeah. of research, what is it that causes autism? That's the million dollar question. Because <laughs> uh, so, we want to know why. Right. I mean, whenever we talk about autism, I just think about the parents that every day want to know why. Yeah, that, that why is important. It's really important for some families less so for others. But what we know about the cause of autism is that there is definitely something genetic. Um, And if we look at the chromosomes of these individuals, about 15 to 20% of them have some kind of abnormality in their chromosomes um, that predisposes them to have autism. But we also know that that genetic difference is not enough in most cases to turn that gene on, that there's something else environmental that's happening with these children Mm -hmm. that is allowing that gene then to be expressed. Um, And the environmental causes, you know, we're still trying to figure out what all of those are, but the ones that have been most substantiated are things that happen very early in development. So um, parents, both um, moms and dads who are older at the time of conception is a contributing factor. Um, Any difficulties during pregnancy, like an illness that mom might have for um, a longer period of time, not just like a cold, but something that lingers and hangs on a bit longer than that. Also, any problems during delivery um, where the child doesn't get oxygen for longer periods of time. Um, And children who are born preterm, very preterm, usually you know, 24, 25 weeks, somewhere around in there. Uh, And also kids that are born little, so Mm -hmm. low birth weight babies. How about any relationship to the age of the parents? Yes. At the time of conception? Yeah, so we used to think that it was just um, older moms who were contributing um, a risk factor then for children to develop autism. But now we know from the research that it's both older moms and dads have a higher risk of having a child with autism. And boys are four times as common as girls. How do you explain that? We don't know the answer to that question yet. I mean, in general, boys have more genetic and and medical issues than girls. Um, But um, so so girls have a more of a protective factor with having two X chromosomes. But we don't fully understand it. There's some mice model research that's suggesting um, that things can go awry more easily in male brains in terms of imitation and social skills. And so we think that when a problem happens during pregnancy or something is amiss, um, that that affects boys differently than it affects girls. Any evidence that there is a relationship between vaccinations and autism? No. (laughs) Our guest, an expert on autism spectrum disorder, Mayo Clinic psychologist, neuropsychologist, Dr. Andrea Hebner. Time for a short break. When we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about diagnostic criteria and the importance of starting treatment early. Our guest, an expert on autism, Dr. Andrea Hebner. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. We'll be back with more Mayo Clinic Radio right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Jives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Our topic, autism spectrum disorder with an expert in neuropsychologist, Dr. Andrea Hebner. Dr. Hebner, a little follow-up on the previous question about is there a relationship between vaccinations and autism? 
there's not a relationship between those two things. But unfortunately, many parents still believe that. Um, and I can understand why. There was some initial erroneous and unethical research that was published. And um, when you're a parent and you're looking for an answer, you know, sometimes these things seem like they make a lot of sense. So a lot of people have looked to this and wondered about their own children if, if that was the cause. But wasn't that research retracted it later was. on? Yes. Yes. And that individual lost his license to practice medicine and has since um, not been able to practice anymore. So there are lots of issues with that particular paper, but unfortunately it's still out there. And um, so people ask questions about this all the time. There have been hundreds of follow-up studies to that initial study that showed that there might be a relationship between vaccines and autism, and they have not shown that there's any link. Because you're a brain doc, I just have to ask a brain-related question here. Um, Because you're talking about brain development, and we know that that continues on into their 20s. Do people with autism, do children become young adults with autism, do their brains develop the same way that other 20-year-old brains, teenage brains develop, or do they develop differently? It's both, actually. I mean, if we look at the brains of very young children with autism, in many cases, there are no differences between kids with autism and and kids who don't have autism. Really, the differences are in the functioning of that brain. So things that are happening at a level that we can't see with our standard tools. So if we would put two individuals in um, fMRI scanners where we're asking them to do a task and we're looking at the brain at work, we would probably see differences Hmm. between people with autism and people without. Um, But just in terms of a static picture, there's not a lot of difference um, in some cases. In some cases, there are. But in terms of the brain development across the lifespan, um, if they started out having a brain that worked differently, then that usually continues throughout development. If they started out with a pretty typical brain, then that's kind of what we tend to see, too, as they mature. How do you help patients and their families, their parents, move forward with life when you have diagnosed them on the spectrum? This is a a process. It's not something that we accomplish at any particular visit. It's through developing a relationship with the child and with the family. And what what we like to do is to really um, guide the family through this journey, this path that they're on. Um, There are high moments when kids are successful and they meet goals and they're doing well. And then there are are harder moments too, just like when you're parenting any child. So I try to meet the parent where they are, wherever they are on that path and just provide support and guidance at that time. But there are so many positive things about kids with autism, just like kids who have any other condition that I really try personally to focus on more of those. Um, it's it's not helpful to parents to focus on all the limitations, but part of what we do with our testing and diagnosis is to find those strengths, and parents can tell us about those strengths, and then we use them to build um, skills so that the child can be as successful as possible. What are the most effective treatment regimens in your experience? So the most um, well-researched treatment for autism is something called applied behavior analysis or ABA therapy. Um, For most children that are diagnosed with autism, I would say under five or six years old, this is the treatment of choice. It's a very intensive treatment. So often this involves 25 to 40 or so hours of therapy per week. 
The therapy is individualized to the child, so assessments are done to determine how the child is performing in communication and social skills, for example. And then typically they work one-on-one with a behavior specialist to try to improve skills one little piece at a time. Uh, One last question about, we mentioned the fact that this could potentially be genetic. Should kids who have been diagnosed with autism have genetic testing? We do recommend that children who are diagnosed with autism receive genetic testing. Um, That's the uh, recommendation through the American Academy of Neurology, and we follow that here. Um, This is often helpful for parents who do want to know the why, um, because as I mentioned, about 15 to 20 percent of the time we can find the why in that um, testing, but more often than not, we can't. It's a process that's helpful for some. When there is some kind of abnormality or difference identified, though, it can be really helpful for us as medical providers to know how to help that child. Can you grow out of autism? I'm sure there were, there are people that would say we shouldn't look at it that way, that autism is just another difference in humans. Um, however, Autism also, in many cases, comes along with some struggles and some difficulties. So I think it makes sense to try to um, help the child develop strengths in that area so that they can have an easier time and kind of get along easier in daily life. In terms of growing out of autism, the whole goal of early intervention is to help the child Um, develop the skills that they don't have naturally, to develop better communication and social skills. Are there any alternative therapies that you have found effective? And I'm thinking of vitamins, uh, supplements, diets, diets, Mm -hmm. special diets, any of those? For children who have GI disturbances like constipation and diarrhea, um, those things are much more common in children with autism than in kids who don't have autism. For children that don't have that kind of disturbance, there's no evidence to suggest that something like that or any other special diet is helpful. Vitamins are helpful to the extent that they are for any child, but not necessarily specific to autism. There's also some um, troublesome treatments, alternative treatments that are targeted for individuals with autism, such as hyperbaric oxygen um, and chelation therapy. And these are actually not advised because they can be very dangerous for kids. And there are also cases, um, more than one case of children dying mm-hmm. by go, you know, when they go through these procedures. None as good as applied behavioral analysis. <laughs> All right. Autism affects one in 59 children in the United States. We don't know what causes it. We don't know how to cure it. But we do know that the earlier therapy is started, the better the outcome. Our thanks to Mayo Clinic psychologist, Dr. Andrea Hebner. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll learn about telemedicine in the emergency department and the role of the pharmacist in your health care. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. We'll be back with more Mayo Clinic Radio right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Telemedicine is a relatively new concept, but with the rapid changes in technology over the past few decades, telemedicine has turned into this complex, integrated service. It's used in in hospitals, in doctors' offices, in homes, just about any kind of healthcare facility you can think of. And here to tell us how it's used and why it's so effective is Mayo Clinic Physician Assistant, Ms. Erin Mason, and Emergency Room Physician, Dr. Chris Russi. Welcome both of you to the program. Thank you. Thanks for having us back. 
Good to have you. So, Aaron, we had a previous life uh, working together here at Mayo, but uh, you now um, are out in the hinterlands and you're using telemedicine. Tell us how that works. That's correct. So I'm using telemedicine as part of my uh, everyday work life in the critical access emergency department that I work in, uh, mostly in Cannon Falls and uh, Lake City. And... uh, in these critical access hospitals, there's usually just myself as a sole provider and one, sometimes two nurses. Uh, I use telemedicine almost on a daily basis when I need a second set of eyes to look at a patient with me or uh, to problem solve through cases that maybe you can different and interesting, um, as well as just kind of shooting ideas back and forth with the uh, the other person on the uh, on the other end of the monitor, usually Dr. Russi or one of his colleagues. Dr. Russi, what equipment do you need to set up telemedicine? It's tricky. Um, so there's obviously fairly significant upfront capital to put a program like this together. Where we were fortunate is Mayo Clinic had already invested in um, uh, partnering with a company called InTouch Health. And they provide our software and our hardware uh, for for the service. Um, so on my end, when I'm sitting in the telehealth bunker in the emergency department, really I just need a computer. I need a good internet connection. I need a good camera. And then the software to link into the, we call them affectionately a robot, but a cart uh, that is sitting with Erin up in Lake City or Cannon Falls or her, whatever her locale is. Which are small towns uh, close to Rochester mm-hmm. and part of the Mayo Clinic <clears throat> healthcare system. Correct. That's right. Well, we, and we, you affectionately called it the hinterlands, but <laughs> there's a lot of this country that is the hinterlands. Sure. And so how does, this, uh, how does this make a difference for patients? Well, for, for patients, it makes a difference in a couple of actually big ways. Um, a lot of patients who are not able to travel all the way to Rochester to see uh, specialists or have the expertise they may otherwise only get in this location. So they'll come to my emergency department and with whatever issue they have going on, and it's a way for them to tap into these this huge specialty resource that we have here in Rochester, Minnesota. So if you have a question, and it's almost always something that you've seen in the emergency room, that's where mm-hmm. you work in these smaller right. hospitals, smaller settings. So then you can call on Dr. Russi anytime to ask him any question about the patient, and it's audio and video, Dr. Right. Russi? Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. And I just wanted to jump on uh, the uh, other major benefit to patients is the ability to help care for the critically ill so, Aaron, as you mentioned, the hinterlands, but these are small rural communities that are resource limited, right? She's often the only provider in that entire facility. Mm-hmm. And so when we run a resuscitation here in the academic campus, we bring teams of people, right, to care for that one individual. Mm-hmm. We want to emulate that to whatever degree we can for her, right? It's not that Aaron can't do the job. She does it very well. But we bring on a telepharmacist with us. We bring on an emergency medicine boarded physician. And together, we're seeing the patient. Uh, we're bouncing off ideas, mm-hmm. talking about tactics and strategies. I can, on the back end, help offload her cognitive burden substantially by getting an accepting physician for a transfer, getting them a helicopter, getting a critical care transport team. And so allows her to stay at the bedside and really focus on the patient and and continue to do her good work. I have to jump in, and Rick will have to edit this because I didn't give a chance um, from this point. Erin, what equipment do you need on your end? 
There's uh, there's a few different ways that I can contact a physician on the other end. One is either by just telephone. Um, I can call and discuss a case with Dr. Russi. Uh, another way is through our medical record system. We, could, we have a texting option where I could just send over a quick request or sentence or have a look at this, that, et cetera. Uh, and then the third way, which is probably the most useful, I think, is video. So I actually bring the video camera into the room and I explain it to the patient. It's a lot like Skype, where you're seeing somebody on the screen, they're interacting with you in real time. Uh, it gives that Dr. Russi an opportunity to see the patient as if he was sitting bedside with me. So it's not a lot. It's not a lot of equipment nope. on either end. Nope. No. Um, if you are uh, resuscitating somebody at one of these smaller facilities, uh, then Dr. Russi can help you with regard, now I think it's time to shock them, now I think you should give them this drug, et cetera? Yes, absolutely. Uh, often, I'm the one who's running the resuscitation or the code, we call it, and uh Dr. Russi has access. He can see my monitors. He can see my labs that have gone through. He can see the patient. And it's as if we're standing next to each other in this room discussing the case. Uh, I think it's been about two minutes. I think it's time we shock now. Oh, I agree. That's, we should do that. Or uh, we've tried this algorithm. We've tried the first, second, and third type of medication. What do you think? What, what should we do next? And he may have a suggestion. Uh, and we collaborate and talk about it together and care for the patient at the same time together. You ever say, have you ever seen anything like this? <laughs> I say that a lot. <laughs> does, this, does it cut down on health care costs over the course of time? Do you think it's going to make a difference? Oh, definitely. Because often by using the telemedicine program, I have access to the uh, consultants, the specialists that I would normally have to send the patient to Rochester for. And so it keeps them from having to travel, having to go through the ER here, having to make a specific appointment for um, a situation that could easily be taken care of through the telemedicine. I think it saves a lot of time, a lot of money, and it, it gives a lot of satisfaction to the patients. How about privacy? And are there state regulations that you have to follow? And are they the same around the country? No, they're fairly uniform. But I mean, obviously, we want to be HIPAA compliant, right? So back to the technology question, right? The, the infrastructure to transmit the data has to be secure. Mm-hmm. Um, we're about to launch a tele-sexual assault program. Uh, and that obviously is going to require significant uh, privacy. Uh, it's a Tell very, a sexual assault. Yeah. yeah so um, a sexual assault victim is seen in a, again, rural, austere location. And previously, uh, those cases would often have to just drive all the way to Rochester to be seen by folks that know how to do this exam. Hmm. It's technically challenging. Mm-hmm. Uh, you want to do it really well for the legal perspective. Um, but now we're bringing on resources through a telehealth mechanism to allow that person to stay there and we guide them through the particular exam and evidence collection. Again, cutting out a transport, cutting out a second ED visit. Making it more timely. Making it more absolutely. timely, exactly. Absolutely. Easier so. on the patient because they don't have to tell their story twice. They don't have to go through everything twice, which uh, we were always worried that when we sent them on to Rochester that maybe they wouldn't come, they just go home. Dr. Russi, is this going to be um, something that can help with overburdened, overloaded physicians and healthcare providers? Uh, we hope so. I mean, uh, to be able to, what brings me the most joy is um, being able to offload the cognitive burden of the providers that are out there, right? So it's not just taking care of the patient, but it's the myriad of other things mm-hmm. that they have to do in the moment. Um, and when somebody's really, really ill, 
it's difficult to remember that task list. And so I can really help her on the back end with, as I mentioned before, transport issues, uh, getting an accepting physician, ideas on medications. One thing that's really been interesting is um, in her example of cardiac arrest, she can really stay at the bedside mm-hmm. and focus on the patient. And in a couple instances, I've actually pulled the camera out of the room and I've talked to the family okay. on mm-hmm. her behalf while the resuscitation is happening. So uh, it, it's been extraordinarily helpful. The family's updated, right? The patient's, patient's receiving good care. And yeah. Well, and how great for the patient having the expertise of the physicians at the big house mm-hmm. when Absolutely. you're in a small town close by and right. they don't have to get here to have that care. Right. Pretty amazing. Right. That's often usually how I introduce it or I'll, I'll tell the patient, you know, this is a way for you to get Rochester care all the way out here, 40, 50 miles away. And people seem very pleased with that. And that's exactly what happens. All right. Telemedicine, allowing health. Perf- <clears throat> Sorry. Telemedicine, allowing healthcare professionals to evaluate, to diagnose, to even treat patients at a distance. It's an alternative to in-person visits. And it's already an important part of the American healthcare system. Our thanks to physician assistant, Ms. Erin Mason, and ER physician, Dr. Chris Russi. Thanks for being here, both of you. Thank you. Thank Thanks you for having much. us. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll learn about the many jobs of a pharmacist. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. We'll be back with more Mayo Clinic Radio right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, over the past 50 years, I don't know if you've noticed, but the role of the pharmacist has changed. It's evolved, and they don't just dispense medications anymore. They're not just pill pushers or pill counters. No. (laughs) Yeah, there's a much bigger role than ever before. So true. They're medical counselors, educators, and patient advocates, and they're giving shots. They're giving vaccinations. Joining us in studio to tell us more about all that they do on our behalf is Mayo Clinic uh, Mayo Clinic pharmacist, Ms. Victoria Zambito. Welcome to the program, Tori. It's very nice to meet you. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. So you must be a busy girl. I mean, there are <laughs> four and a half billion prescriptions filled every year in this country. Yeah. You know, it's pretty incredible how medicine has evolved over the years and how we have so many more prescriptions to treat illnesses out there. So naturally, you know, the number of prescriptions each year is going to rise. You think people are taking too many uh, prescription um, drugs because I mean, uh, just let me let me mention to our audience close to 50% of people between the ages of 70 and 79 are taking five or more prescription drugs polypharmacy a problem in this country you know it can be it definitely can be um so And I think the main issue has to do with continuity of care. So when patients have several different illnesses that they're trying to manage and they see these different specialty physicians for each condition, you know, maybe not everybody's on the same page or has the full picture or knows all the medications that that patient's taking. And so, yeah, sure, polypharmacy can be um, an issue that comes in there with duplicate therapy, but that's where pharmacists can kind of come in and intervene, review everything, and make any changes uh, that are needed to prevent any therapeutic overkill. Poly, does polypharmacy mean multiple medications? Is sure that what that does. means? Yep. Yeah. Well, there you go. We learned yeah. something new today. Day. So it's MTM. Tell us about MTM. MTM. So medication therapy management. That is a program that is covered by Medicare Part D. And so it's specifically for patients who are taking, I believe, seven or more medications for at least three chronic conditions. And then so Medicare Part D will cover these counseling sessions with a healthcare provider 
provider, and it's usually a pharmacist. It doesn't have to be. But um, so basically the pharmacist will meet with the patient, go over their conditions, the medications, the best uh, way for them to take them that's easiest um, and for them to remember to take them. Other lifestyle factors, diet, exercise, you know, and then just kind of follow up with them. So you sorry, you said uh, you have to be taking seven different prescription drugs and have three separate chronic conditions. And that in sounds order to like that's a lot, but you would be surprised how, how many, many people? people actually have Incredible. seven or more. Yep. Huh? What is, uh, first of all, what made you want to become a pharmacist? How did you get interested in this? Sure. Actually, that's a great question. So. I started out in business in Spanish, believe it or not, a long, long time ago. thought that was a little too broad for me, and I had a friend who was in pharmacy school. And so I went, and I kind of shadowed, and I learned about pharmacy. And I really was drawn to it because I knew right off the bat that there were so many different ways that I could use that degree. So a PharmD can be used in the hospital, can be used at your local retail pharmacy. Mm -hmm. It could be an industry or research or... There's just various different opportunities for a pharmacist. And so I really loved that kind of well-rounded aspect. What is the typical day in the life of a pharmacist? And you are a hospital pharmacist. I am, yes. So 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 I work in patients. So I'm taking care of the patients that are currently staying in the hospital. And so... That could be anything from going and speaking to the patients about what they t- the medications that they take at home and making sure that we can provide those here while they're here. Um, going over allergies and looking for drug interactions and uh, making sure that medications we do give here are the right dose and the, um, the right m- indication. And, um, and then also like monitoring for things like antibiotics, making sure that the levels in their body are appropriate and making uh, dose adjustments as needed. So you actually go into patients' rooms and speak with the patients, speak with their family. So a, a lot of pharmacists do that. Um, specifically, I see patients going into surgery. So I'll see them kind of on a floor where we have them reserved for their for their transition into uh, surgery. So I'll see them beforehand so that when they get out of surgery, everything's all set up for them and ready to go. Uh, I Have you ever worked in a non-hospital setting, like at a Target pharmacy or a retail pharmacy? You know, I haven't. I've done rotation experiences in okay. school there, so I am familiar with what they go through and, and what their processes are like, but I haven't outside of school worked. Well, here's my question, setting. because when I go to pick <laughs> up a prescription, the number of people, and I like it that the clerk always says, do you have any questions for the pharmacist? Mm-hmm. I hardly ever have seen anyone say, yes, I do. Sure. So... I'm going to assume that you would advocate that people do take that moment to pull that pharmacist aside when it's been offered to them. What should people talk about with their pharmacist when they're picking up a new prescription? Absolutely. You know, I think it's something that people can often take for granted, but a pharmacist is a doctor that they can walk into the pharmacy at any time for free and ask questions, you know, and and more times than not, they'll probably have some kind of answer for them. So whether the patient's having issues with side effects or something's just not working for them or they're having trouble remembering to take their medications, there's so many different things you can you can ask a pharmacist. Well, that so, sheet of paper that comes with it mm-hmm. is, and I say one sheet of paper, sometimes it's two sheets of paper that come with a prescription that mm-hmm. talk about the side effects and sure. different things. That's a lot to manage if you have seven prescriptions. Absolutely. And it's a lot to remember. You know, I, I would never expect a patient to remember, you know, what every medication they take is for even. Because the names of medications can be 
pretty wild <laughs> and hard to pronounce and hard to remember. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, that's what a pharmacist is there for, to help break it down for them and make it as easy as possible. The one thing that you uh, pharmacists at a particular pharmacy probably don't know, if the patient has gone to multiple different pharmacies, you don't know all the different medications that they're on, right? Well, so... If they've gone to multiple different pharmacies, sometimes we can look and check and see if they've gotten prescriptions filled at other pharmacies. It kind of just depends. Um, and then we can contact their providers and get a bigger picture. Oh, you can. Absolutely. So then, because the big question is, you know, if they're coming in for a, a new prescription, is that going to have some adverse interaction with the other ones that I'm taking? But you can get that information and, and help answer that question. Absolutely, yeah. And you guys give vaccines. Shots. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So in Minnesota, um, I believe that pharmacists can vaccinate anyone six and up for flu vaccines and then 13 and up for all other recommended vaccines as long as it's under a signed protocol by a physician. And um, so that's really neat. And yeah, people can walk in and, and get a vaccine at their local pharmacy. I was looking forward to speaking with you today because... You listened to our new Mayo Clinic podcast, which is Mayo Clinic Q&A, little bitty commercial there, teeny <laughs> tiny, and reached out to us and said, I want to talk with you about being a pharmacist. And so you must be pretty fired up about um, helping people through pharmacy. Yeah. Why, you did know, you, why did you reach out to us? I thought it was an amazing platform for a pharmacist to speak out because I think a lot of times healthcare is constantly evolving and pharmacy can kind of take a back seat a little bit. And I think that, you know, we've got just as much to offer as anybody else. So I want to make sure that people, especially patients, know that we're a resource and we're an accessible resource that they can come and, and utilize at their discretion. Do you happen to know what the number one prescribed drug is in the U.S.? I do. It is levothyroxine or Synthroid. So <laughs> how about number two? That's number me. two, I think it's <laughs> one of the statins. I think it's a torvastatin now. Um, I know they do for that. For high cholesterol. Yep, for cholesterol. That surprises me. Yeah. Now, no. You know, there are some drugs now <laughs> that a month's supply will cost $50,000. Does that oh concern gosh. you? It does. You know, I, I mean, insurance typically helps a lot, but I understand that not everybody can afford insurance. And so, you know, it, it is definitely a difficult thing because from our standpoint, we want patients to get medications. You know, we want them to have the care that they deserve and need. But What do you think about difficult. generic drugs? Are you pretty convinced that they're as good as the, the brand? Absolutely. Yeah. So most of the time we do recommend switching to the generic. Uh, there are certain things that I might be a little iffy on, like your over-the-counter eye drops, things like that. But for the most part, yeah, go get your generic acetaminophen, ibuprofen. It's all the same, pretty much. Is it? I okay. think we should yeah. invite her to be our official pharmacist. <laughs> all right. Hey, you absolutely. Are the official I'm pharmacist at the Mayo Clinic <laughs> yes. Radio. Your mom is going to be so proud. Oh, I can't wait to tell her. <laughs> well, certainly they do more than just uh, count pills. Pharmacists are now an integral part of the healthcare team. Our thanks to Mayo Clinic pharmacist Victoria Zambito. Thanks so much for being with Thank us. Thank you. You should know the COVID-19 virus creates symptoms that are similar to those you'd have with the flu. Fever, sore throat and dry cough, shortness of breath, fatigue, body pain, especially in the back and shoulders, and possible nausea and diarrhea. If you get these symptoms, stay home and call your health care provider for information about what to do next. 
Reporting symptoms is especially important if you have an underlying condition or complex illness, such as heart or lung disease, diabetes, or another issue that compromises your immune system. For more information about prevention and treatment of coronavirus, visit mayoclinic.org slash COVID-19. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, thank you for listening.